Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kale. It is eight minutes past ten on Monday, the 29th of May. Can you believe it? How did we get here? Okay, we got here largely in the dark, but still. Anyhow, I'm going to be your host for the next hour for this Discam Medical Monday. And once again, thank you so much to Discam for their generous support that actually makes this this show possible. Where we bring you the top medical experts talking about issues relevant to you. Now, yesterday was the International Day for Action for Women's Health. That's a very, very broad subject. Firstly, the number one cause of death in women. Do you want to hazard a guess what it is? All right, while you're thinking about that, I'll tell you about some other women's health issues that are particularly of concern. Uh, It would be stroke, diabetes, maternal health issues, urinary tract infections, sexual health, breast cancer, osteoporosis. It's massive. It's absolutely massive. so I actually spoke to our guest, who I'll introduce in a moment, and I said, you know, can we narrow it down? Because it's just too broad. And this issue with having, you know, a lot of different topics is that you don't really want bite sizes. If when you've got a guest expert of the caliber who uh, who we have this morning, you're going to want to actually, you know, deep dive and get into those very, very meaty uh, topics. So, the number one cause of death for women is, dun da da da, that's my version of a drum roll, heart disease. True story. But heart disease is very, very prevalent worldwide. And it's not specific to women. So that's why we're not talking about that. What we are going to be talking about is plumbing. Women's plumbing. And we're also going to be talking, of course, about breast cancer. We've invited Professor Greta Dreyer. She's a female obstetrician and gynecologist. She specializes in gyneoncology. That is cancer of, you know, gynecological, or the plumbing, cancer of the plumbing. Can I I refer to it as that? Uh, Professor Dreyer is also an associate professor at the University of Pretoria and the head of the gynecologic oncology unit at Pretoria Academic Hospital, and she joins us now. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Cassie. I'm very well. Thank you for the invitation, and good morning to your listeners as well. Thank you very much. So, what is the most prevalent um, cancer in women? Would it be breast cancer, cervical cancer, uterine cancer? So in South Africa, um, it is currently breast cancer. It is the most common disease, uh, most common cancer specific to women and in women, um, followed by cervical cancer. But cervical cancer is actually responsible for more deaths than breast cancer. Okay. So uh, that, that means um, if we have to prioritize, we basically have to prioritize both of these. That's quite it's quite strange because a few weeks ago I did a show on HPV, human papillomavirus, which is often the cause of cervical cancer. It's also throat cancer, tongue cancer, and penis cancer in men. But 
cervical cancer, is it 100% preventable? Or is it, are there just some cancers that, you know, whether it's introduced via HPV or not, if it's there, it's there? Nothing is 100% preventable. So even in the best of countries with the best of healthcare, um, even all HPV-related cancers are not 100% preventable, but it is very, very, very largely preventable. And uh, it, it is also by early detection that we prevent cancer deaths. So it's not only important to prevent cancer from happening, it's important to prevent people from dying from cancer. So early detection is really critical, and that is what breast cancer is doing better than cervical cancer. It is also the disease biology, the inherent biology. Breast cancer is usually detected earlier and does not metastasize and kill as early as cervical cancer does. So the biology is more of this. Right, because there's, there's a psychology. I mean, we teach our daughters you have to do breast exams. You have to examine yourself. Often, you know, a lump might be found by, you know, a partner. You know, as soon as you find the lump, whether it's benign or whether it's malignant, you you don't know, but you go and you have it checked out. We never ignore these things. With cervical cancer, it's not it's not so easy. I mean, self-examination, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry well, to make light of it, but, I mean, it's not possible. So before we even well, go for the... Can, can you maybe just um, go through the anatomy of of, you know, the cervix? Where is the cervix? What is it? What role does it play? Okay, so um, the cervix is called the mouth of the uterus. Um, in, in some languages, it's called the neck, and in Latin, it actually means neck and not mouth, but it is the, the lowest part of the, of the utera, uterus or the, the um, uh, well, there are many different names for it, but it is the organ that carries the baby, and therefore it forms the uh, roof of the vagina. And it's interesting that you talked about plumbing and you talked about self-examination because it is actually potentially possible to feel your own cervix. So if you, uh, for most women, it's actually possible to, to, put, to put one or two fingers in the vagina, feel high up where you would put your tampon when you have a menstrual period, and just feel a bit higher, you can actually feel your cervix. And there has been people saying that that should be the the easiest possible way to screen for cervical cancers. Just feel if your cervix is actually small and smooth as it used to be. The earliest uh, uh, symptom of cervical cancer is actually bleeding on contact. Now, the problem with many cervixes is there's no contact. So the typical contact would be getting a pap smear, putting your finger in and feel, which many people, well, basically almost nobody will do, and then uh, sexual intercourse. So bleeding after, or with or after sexual intercourse is the earliest symptom of, of a cancer being uh, present on the, on the mouth of the uterus. So um, if we would just make sure that somebody touches the cervix often, whether it's your partner or yourself, a lot of people would and should actually be able to feel that there's some lumpiness and then some bleeding, but it's something that's not often done. And the other thing is the the knowledge that it's you know that it's important and it's abnormal to have a you know a lumpiness and a and a bleeding there 
is not widespread. So we are not so doing so very well with them, with that. So we have, as a, as a woman, three channels. So the very front one is the very small opening of your bladder, um, urethra. And then the middle one is the, the vagina, which is also the birth channel. And at the back, of course, uh, the, the anus and the anal canal where you pass to. So, uh, uh, it's important to notice anatomy and to understand how you know, what, how things work. When you say bleeding, you know, during or after intercourse, how much bleeding is that? Well, actually, any bleeding after intercourse is not normal and should be addressed and should be checked out. So you don't need, and it doesn't, it's not always a, a, a lot of blood the first time. Over time, as the cancer gets bigger and more bloody and more ulcerated, you can have a larger volume of blood and you can have intermittent, spontaneous intermenstrual bleeds, um, which are not, you know, happening in the right time. And in our country, cervical cancer is still common after the menopause. So it often presents with bleeding after the menopause. When you should really not bleed again. You should stop bleeding and then not bleed again. And any bleeding after the menopause must be examined. It must not be treated with some tablet. It must be examined with a speculum and with a pap smear and with, by someone actually understanding the work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those necessary things that you have to do as much as you don't want to. You know, it's, you just you have to take responsibility. Nobody else is going to do it. All right. So, if you've just joined me, I'm speaking to Professor Greta Dreyer. She's a female obstetrician and gynaecologist, especially specialising, pardon me, in gynae oncology. Professor Dreyer is also an associate professor at the University of Pretoria and the head of the gynaecologic oncology unit at Pretoria Academic Hospital. If you have any questions, any concerns. Please believe me when I tell you, she's not an easy person to just pick up the phone and say, hey, Professor Dreyer, these are my questions. This is your opportunity. If you have any questions for my guest, they could be general questions about women's health. They could be general questions about, you know, gyneoncology. It could be about uh, gynecology. You are welcome to send me a text. Sign it anonymous or don't sign your name if you don't want me to give your name. And uh, you can also give me a call, and here are the numbers, 34519, that is the SMS line. Those SMSs are charged at VAS rates. You can also send me a message on Telegram if you have that app, and that number is 061-895-1019. Or you can give me a call in studio, and that number is 0101 It's like a song, 0101 40, 30, 20. So give us a call or send a text if you have any questions. We're talking about women's health because yesterday, the 28th of May, was the United Nations International Day of Action for Women's Health. We've narrowed it down because there are lots and lots of issues that affect women's health, but we've narrowed it down to two of the most serious. And uh, my guest, if you've just joined us, was saying earlier that... You know, we've got breast cancer and we have cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is not as easily detected as breast cancer. I mean, think about it, whether you're a male or female. If you have a lump in your breast, we know to get it checked out. Cervical cancer, it's not so easy. 
So that's why we're talking about it. It's important. We want to raise the awareness. We want to keep it on your radar. And uh, as I say, if you have any questions, then you should definitely get in touch. Professor, what are the other symptoms Okay, so of cervical cancer? So you said this bleeding during intercourse, or could it be what happens if you, if you perhaps are not in a relationship and you're not having intercourse? Right, so then, as you said earlier, there wouldn't be bleeding. So are there other symptoms? So that's exactly the problem, you know, that that leads so often to late detection because this disease is, is apart from that contact bleeding and not even all tumors will bleed on contact because some happen actually higher up in the canal and they don't necessarily bleed when you touch them. But it takes quite a lot of time for these, disease, these, these tumors to become symptomatic. One other thing that they often do is they produce a discharge. And specifically when the tumor gets larger, you get like a, a, a dead tumor type discharge, which is smelly and quite watery and uh, can be a, a large volume as well. Later it will cause pain. It will, can cause uh, um, one or two legs to swell where you get a blood clot or obstruction of the, of the lymphatics, and by that time you have late-stage disease. End-stage disease is characterized by kidney failure, which once again is quite asymptomatic until very late in the disease process. So we really should talk about preventing this disease and not just about detection. Right. Well, I think it's both, don't you? Yes, no, totally. We definitely should be <laughs> but, speaking but, about but both. What but we need to to speak about early detection and not late detection. All right. So early detection. Uh, before we get there, um, one of our listeners' questions wants to know if there's a relationship between fibroids and cervical cancer. I think that's a great question. Thank you so much. Is yes, there a relationship? Nice question. What are fibroids? Firstly, if you can tell us what is a fibroid. Okay. So fibroids are very, very, very common uterine tumor. Uh, first it, um, demonstrated in the Egyptian mummies, it, the, the story goes. And it's, it's really about, it's a round fleshy tumor which develops from the muscle wall of the uterus, of the womb itself. So the womb becomes then larger because, you know, these round balls of tumor, um, develop in the uter, in the, in the must, in the wall. They, um, many, Patients will actually tend to get multiple of these. So you, you get, you know, several large growths in the womb, and that makes the womb then very large and um, leads to abnormal bleeding. Usually the bleeding that happens with, uh, with fibroids or myomas, as we call them, will be um, not necessarily out of cycle, but rather in cycle. So you bleed when you have your period. Your period just becomes heavier and heavier and very painful sometimes. Not all fibroids lead to abnormal bleeding. Some of them will just give you like discomfort and a feeling of heaviness or something pushing on your bladder or bowel. Okay. The only thing okay. that, that fibroids and cervix shares is the organ. So, <laughs> okay. There's no other so there's no other, there's no connection. If somebody's got a lot of fibroids, there's no connection between cervical cancer or uterine cancer. I mean, can fibroids become cancerous? No, we don't think they can. Um, you get a, a cancer that looks like a fibroid, but that is a separate story. We don't actually think, we call them sarcomas. 
And they are solid tumors of the uterine body. But um, we don't think that fibroids really ever become cancerous. And they don't share any uh, character, any etiology with cervical cancer. So you don't have an elevated risk either way. Okay. Both are common diseases. So both can come at, can, can occur at the, in the same person just because they're both common. And do we know what causes fibroids? Or do they just no. literally pop out? We don't, <laughs> no, we don't know what causes them. We, we have a long list of risk factors. But the risk factor is not the same as a cause. Okay. So All right. Well, that, we you know what? I just think that's just too tantalizing. You know, this, this sounds like clickbait. You've just given me clickbait. What are the risk factors for fibroids? <laughs> so um, not, not having children, not being pregnant is a risk factor. Um, but we all have that one because nobody is pregnant all the time anymore. That's just very old-fashioned. So we usually have two or three children. So most of the time we're not pregnant. Um, but having been pregnant all the time does protect you, which is really something we can't do. Um, and then the ri- another risk factor is genetic. So if there's a family history or a certain racial groups get more fibroids, etc., um, and it, apparently there are differences in estrogen metabolism. So how we actually make our hormones may play a, play a role in these tumors because they do grow um, stimulated by hormones. So interesting. That's something that has caused billions of women such unbelievable discomfort has never been researched to the extent that we know what causes it. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a bit of an anathema to me. All right. So just getting back to cervical cancer, uh, you, just, uh, for that, for that listener, the prof was very clear and said that there's no relationship between fibroids and cervix other than they share the same, and cancer of the cervix, other than they share the same organ. Uh, if you would like, if you've got your questions, you're welcome to send them through. 34519. That is the SMS line. Or 0618951019 on uh, Telegram. You can also give us a call on 0101403020. Welcome to be anonymous. Uh, my guest this morning is Professor Greta Dreyer. She's a female obstetrician and gynecologist specializing in gyneoncology. Professor Dreyer is also an associate professor at the University of Pretoria and the head of the gynecologic oncology unit at Pretoria Academic Hospital. We are very, very lucky to have her for this full hour. And she's all yours. Isn't that amazing? So you can send through your questions. We're talking about breast cancer. We're talking about cervical cancer. Why? Because they are the two most serious cancers affecting women. And yesterday was the United Nations International Day of Action for Women's Health. All right, let's get back to uh, cervical cancer. So uh, you said early detection or, you know, um, even late detection, I think you said, you can have the contact bleeding you know, during uh, intercourse, and you also said that there would be a discharge, but that's already in later stages. What are the other symptoms, or are there no symptoms? Is this just a silent, scary situation? I mean, should we be anxious now? We really shouldn't call it silent because um, we do most of the time actually see some symptoms. The problem with many diseases is, in retrospect, you will know that you had the symptoms if you start analyzing. 
But the, the, the real trick is to identify the, the symptom and do something about it earlier. You know, you can even call bowel cancers quiet because, you know, you might just get a little bit of blood in your stool and nothing much else unless it's, until it's late. But the fact that you are getting blood in your stool means that it's not really quiet. And the same thing goes for the cervical cancers. You know, it's not really that quiet because usually there is a symptom. It's just that we don't recognize it and we don't always check it out. That said, I really, really think, you know, we should do better than that. We should really, really focus on prevention because we have primary and secondary prevention methods for cervical cancer. And uh, if we do that well enough, the early detection will become less important. So we, we also consider cervi- uh, uh, examination and screening for cervical cancer as a method to detect cervical cancer early. So when we run a, a, a pap smear program or an HPV testing program to actually try and really prevent cervical cancer, we will also detect in 1% to 2% of women in the, in the, the screening program will usually already have an invasive cancer. So that's also a method to actually detect cancer early. So if your screening program works well, then you detect cancers early. I was actually quite um, uh, interested to find out, I mean, you mentioned HPV. I was quite interested to find out that there isn't a specific HPV test, that when you go as a woman and you, and you go for your pap smear, they don't automatically test for HPV. And I was very surprised to learn that, that if you want to know if you as a woman are carrying HPV, because women can carry it, men can carry it as well, that it's not automatically screened as part of a pap smear. It's only if there's something abnormal, but that abnormal could be absolutely anything. It could be, you know, higher hormone level. It could be anything. It could be absolutely anything. So why don't we screen for HPV with with general pap smears? That's a really interesting question. So we have known for many, many years now that the most sensitive screening test for cervical cancer is actually the HPV test. So if you test for HPV rather than doing a pap smear, you will miss less cancers and you will also miss uh, less precancerous lesions and less women at risk than if you screen with a pap smear. So why haven't we started screening with an HPV test then? It's so logical. They, they I mean, it really is logical. And it's not a cheap test to have on its own, just saying. No, it's not a cheap test. So that's one of the reasons why we probably haven't implemented it widely. But there are many other reasons as well. There is always, a, a, you know, an introduction time needed for uh, patients and healthcare workers to actually start understanding um, not only is that it's a better test, but how to interpret the test and how to manage the positive test now. Because having HPV doesn't mean that you are, you know, going to get cervical cancer tomorrow. Uh, it actually detects risk earlier than what a pap smear would detect risk. And that means that we need a very specific method to actually manage the positive test. 
There's also uh, even the question of stigma. So women would sort of understand better to have an abnormal pap smear. They have, you know, some cancer risk now. If you tell them they have a virus, then they immediately start wondering where they got the virus. So we have to address that as well but for, for general population to understand, you know, that a virus is not something that you just got from your last partner, but it is just a virus, it's a piece of DNA that landed on your cervix anywhere in your entire life. So it's these things are, are parts of the reason why we haven't introduced HPV screening. The other thing then is um, actually for government also to to update their guidelines and to update also the laboratories because you know you can't just start sending a million HPV tests without having the capacity to do them. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, well, that was a very well answered question. <laughs> I just wish that it was different because I think that, you know, the more people you can identify are carrying HPV, then you understand your, your risk factors. You know, and, and it's not only that, it's a, when I did a show a few months ago on HPV to learn that men, if a woman is carrying HPV or has, has the HPV virus, a man can get throat cancer from oral sex um it's i mean we love our partners we want to protect them right so if you don't want to do it for yourself do it for your partner but uh but anyway that's 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 kind of off the off the subject in a way because hpv there is a direct correlation between hpv and cervical cancer so so if you have tested positive for hpv and you should probably go and get screened anyway uh, if you're a risk or if you have some kind of a discharge, just go and see a doctor. Um, but you should just go, just go. And it's, it's incredible peace of mind knowing. What do you do if you do have a positive? Is, is there certain things that you can do change? I mean, if, if somebody has a positive HPV test, what does it mean in terms of cervical cancer? So this is the other reason why we have probably not um, integrated it well into our health system because it's not so easy to know what to do with it. So there are about 15 HPV types that are associated in some way with cervical cancer. But um, if we test for all 15 of them, about half of them will be responsible for almost no cancers. They have the ability, but they don't have a strong ability to cause cancer. So we are currently thinking that we should probably ignore the, the, the bottom half of the numbers. So there are probably around eight HPV types that are really important in, in terms of oncogenic potential. So if you have those, then you should probably treat it. But now the, the, the point is we don't have an HPV antibiotic. So we can't actually treat the virus with with a magic potion, which means we are actually focusing on removing the piece of skin that is virus infected and where the HPV DNA is actually integrated into the cells of the cervix. And that is their way of then causing havoc. So when the HPV DNA goes into the nucleus of the cell, it changes the cell DNA and genetics, and it changes the cancer, the cell into a precancer cell, and eventually into a cancer cell. 
And we can't eradicate the virus, but we can eradicate those cells that are infected by the virus. And that's actually all we have to do. We don't have to actually kill the virus. That's fascinating. So they can actually isolate and remove the infected cells that are carrying HPV. That's the human papillomavirus. That's fascinating. That's that's incredible. So how how would that be done? I mean, is that a, is that a um, is that you know surgery? Is it uh, local? Is it general? I've never even heard of this. Yeah. So interesting thing is, people think that a pap smear prevents cancer. Of course, a pap smear doesn't prevent cancer; it detects risk. Yes. So once you've detected risk, you have to do the prevention part, and the prevention part is killing those infected cells. So we um, have a number of ways to actually look at the cervix and then see which cells are growing faster than other cells. So um, among that, it will be that they color differently with acetic acid. We have a diluted mixture that we use, and we also use a, a watery solution of iodine. And the normal cells would then turn dark brown, and the fast-growing cells would turn slightly yellow. This is so wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds so simple. <laughs> it, it is simple, and it's a very old method as well. And then you can, you know, eradicate only those cells. So you can do this with cryotherapy, which worked very well, but logistically is difficult because you have to carry around um, uh, cans with uh, gas and whatever, get refills and that sort of thing. So it's not a method widely used in South Africa. And you can excise the area that is abnormal. Or you can actually use thermoablation as well. Now, thermoablation is simply really done with a hot stick that you press against the abnormal area. And you just need to adhere nicely to the area and do the correct number of, you know, minutes or seconds, keep it there, and then basically with a slight burn wound, actually eradicate the surface cells. Okay, so this is sounding less dismal. Alright, so you spoke about early detection. Obviously, that is for women to have a pap smear. That is where you're going to pick up early detection. A little bit further down the line, if there is, uh, you know, if there is more cancer of the cervix, you're going to have bleeding. You said uh, during intercourse or any kind of contact, because often the cervix will start bleeding if uh, if it's touched, and there'll also be a discharge which is in already later stages. Are there any other symptoms? So, and, and you know, the pre-cancer cells, the, 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 or the cancer cells at risk that I've just described that we sort of detect with all these fancy colorings, they are completely asymptomatic. They don't have any symptoms. It is only when you have an invasive cancer that really already evades the, invades the blood vessels, etc., that you can Okay. So no, I'm afraid no other symptoms that I can think of. <laughs> so I mean, it's not like there's a feeling of bloatedness or nausea or frequent urination or there's there's nothing like that. It's literally just a discharge and contact bleeding, in which case you're already further down the line or possibly. You know, but think about it. The cervix is really a small little organ of about two by three centimeters, and when it becomes cancerous. 
it is still a small little organ, two by three centimeters, sitting on the at the top of your vagina. So it doesn't immediately, you know, go, grow into your abdomen and start obstructing your bowel or something. It's simply just the normal organ is not a normal organ anymore. It is now actually, you know, an abnormal organ. So it's not going to give you symptoms because it's not in your brain or lungs. It is just simply still exactly where it was. It's just not healthy anymore. All right. So in a in a hysterectomy, is the cervix removed or is the cervix left intact? Usually removed. So we talk about a subtotal hysterectomy, and that is where the cervix is left behind. If a subtotal hysterectomy is done, the cervix is left at the top of the vagina, a woman must be informed very, very specifically that the cervix was left behind and that she needs to continue doing her pap smears. Well, there you go. If you've got any questions, 34519 is the SMS line. You can also send send me a telegram on 061-895-1019. You can give me a call on 0101. 40, 30, 20. We are live this morning. This is Diskem Medical Monday. My name is Kathy Kayla, and I will be your host until round about 5 to 11. My guest this morning is Professor Greta Dreyer. She's a female obstetrician and gynecologist specializing in gyne-oncology. That's actually quite a good word. I have to say. Uh, Professor Dreyer is also an associate professor at the University of Pretoria, and she's the head of the Gynecologic Oncology Unit at Pretoria Academic Hospital. I I would actually venture to say she's one of the top experts in the country. And you can hear. You can hear she knows what she's talking about. If you have any questions, send them through. If you sign your name, I'll mention it. If you don't sign your name, I won't mention it. But uh, really, how else are you going to get access to this incredible, incredible professor? We're talking about specific conditions that affect women's health. And it's a very, very broad topic from heart disease, high blood pressure, all kinds of things. But there are, of course, and, and uh, you know, heart disease, high blood pressure, those are going to affect men as well. We were looking for conditions that are unique to women. So, of course, we've got to look at the plumbing. Uh, and that's why we're talking about cervical cancer. And we're going to be talking about breast cancer as well, because that's very, very important, especially in the Jewish community. If you are of Eastern European descent, uh, then you'll have something known as the BRCA2 gene. Have you been tested for it? You let me know. If you've been tested, if you your children, your parents, if you have gone and you've got screening for the BRCA2 gene, let me know. 34519 is the telephone number, or 061, or that's the SMS number, or 061-895-1019. All right, can we talk about uh, breast cancer and symptoms? Does it always start with feeling a lump in your breast? Well, we actually today want to detect breast cancer before it's, before it's palpable. So we know that that is what mammograms do better than fingers. They detect breast cancer at a smaller size. Um, and that's really, really what we want. Uh, that said, many lumps in the breast are not cancerous. Um, so it is also about detecting change. 
in the breasts and uh, but but the smaller the breasts are the easier it will be actually to feel a small lump the bigger your breasts are the, the more important it is to actually do very regular mammography because you can't feel inside a deep breast you will need a bigger lump to actually detect it so uh, uh, the other symptoms are of skin changes and then also nipple discharge and all of those are really important. And Some people will actually present present with a lump in the axilla also. So Where's axilla? So, sorry. <laughs> okay, she showed <laughs> me under arm. her arm, <laughs> just to okay. be clear. <laughs> okay, so the armpit. So uh, you could actually have, in the, in the armpit, you could have a lump, which is why when you do yeah. a breast exam, you feel around the breast, under the breast, in different positions, lying down, standing up, whatever. You've got to look at your breasts in the mirror. They've got to be equal. You can't have one that's slightly lopsided. Your nipples should be, I don't know, is the, is the word pert? No, that's not the word that I'm looking for. But you don't want inverted. You don't want inverted nipples because that can, especially unless you, unless you always had them. Yeah, unless you always. You had know, them. that's that's really the thing. Your breasts shouldn't change. So any change in the breast is important. Yeah, especially if uh, one is more lopsided. Now they've gone from symmetrical, asymmetrical. When you say skin changes, what kind of skin changes? Well, it's actually about the lymphatic drainage of the breast. So if the lymphatics are, are, are blocked and this, the drainage of the skin becomes uh, problematic, the skin will swell and that will actually give you what we call a, an orange peel type look. Um, but you can have redness as well, which is also abnormal. Um, and actually any skin changes must be checked out. Okay. If you've got any questions, you're welcome to send them through three four five one out. I think I think our listeners might be a little intimidated to talk about this on the radio, but you know what? It's absolutely normal. And if we are not talking about the health of our bodies, then we should be. It's uh, it's as simple as that. So get in touch. I also want to know if you have had screening, you your family, perhaps you've sent uh, your daughters, if you've received screening for the BRCA2 gene, which is the gene found in Eastern European um, Jewish population, because of course it's, uh, yeah, it's genetic, um, and it, it is directly related to cancer, then, yeah, let me know. Just a, a quick poll. Three, four, That's five, Kathy, maybe we can spend a little bit of time on the BRCA genes. Maybe we can just talk about that a little bit. We can. I just want to, just before we do that, um, I do apologize. Our listeners have been messaging and for some reason my system wasn't updating. It's now updating. So they've got questions that I need to ask you. Um, from Carol. Thank you, Carol. She says, if one has a dropped bladder, is it still safe to have intercourse? That's a great question. Totally safe. Sometimes you may feel uh, some changes during intercourse, may feel a little bit different, um, but actually drop breaths are quite normal. It's something that happens with age and also with a bit of obesity sometimes, but age makes it quite common and uh, they don't even need to be fixed unless they are symptomatic and sex is completely safe. All right, so what causes a drop bladder? bladder? Well, um, you know, probably gravity most of all, 
<laughs> and then also um, a childbirth and being pregnant um, plays an important role in increasing the laxity of our, our ligaments. And then just older age and uh, hormone deficiency also causes laxity of the, the uh, ligaments and means that uh, organs start dropping a little bit. Okay. And poor, poor muscles. Ah, so you've got to do those pelvic exercises. Will those pelvic exercises help? Yes, they will help. That said, um, many uh, patients actually get prolapse because the pelvic nerves are not so healthy anymore, and that means the pelvic exercises don't work so well. But definitely try to move what you can move and pull in what you can pull in. Okay, there you go. Um, other messages coming through. And uh, this one says, if you have atypical cells with HPV using uh, numbering, is it numbering or nuvering or hormonal contraception? Is it better not to use? Um, there's a very small association between uh, the oral contraceptive pill and some uh, cervical changes. We don't really know exactly how that works, but we don't consider it important enough to actually um, advise stopping or changing hormonal contraceptives. Uh, really such a small factor that and and probably and no effectivity has been shown in actually stopping your hormones or oral contraceptives um, in actually clearing up the infection or abnormality on the cervix so no I would say get the vaccine and get the treatment and uh, continue your your contraceptive isn't it the same argument with um, with breasts and mammograms you know the amount of radiation that you receive during those, um, you know, those examinations at the at the mammography center outweighs the benefits of having it done. Outweighs any amount of radiation or risk that that carries. Is that true? Yeah, it doesn't outweigh it. Far, far, far outweighs it. Okay, well, there we go. Far, <laughs> far, far outweighs it. All right, another message uh, coming through. Thank you so much for this. Can the vaccine help if you have already, um, if you already carry the HPV 16? Because there are, yes, you can. said that there are different types of HPV. So 16 is the, is the most dangerous one. It's, it's close friend is 18. So those two guys together, cause the vast majority of cervical cancers. And then we have uh, downstream friends like 31, 33, 35, 52, and 58. So that's the top eight. Um, the vaccines that we do have currently um, are mostly 16 and 18, and the new one that will um, be available has the rest of the top eight apart from number 35. So it has basically the top seven viral types in. So these vaccines um, are are actually designed primarily to prevent you from getting the infection. So it may, gives you antibodies against the, against the virus, so the first time you meet the virus, it will not go into your body. That's how it should work. But it also works by in giving you high levels of antibodies, which then prevents like reinfection. So if you get treated for your HPV-16, the area is excised or ablated or whatever, then your risk of recurrent cancer or uh, pre-cancer is reduced by having the vaccine. So yes, uh, we certainly think it's a good plan. 
um, it's it's more cost effective to um, vaccinate all the young girls than to vaccinate older women with lesions. But if we look on an individual basis, older women with lesions can definitely benefit from getting the vaccine before they get treatment, and then that will help to prevent reinfection. All right. And uh, recurrence of Okay, Anonymous, obviously responding to what you were saying about contraception, stay with contraception. Uh, Anonymous responding says, if you have a choice between con- oral contraception, well, if you have a choice between contraceptions, should you go for a UID? No, you're Sorry, an IUD. An IUD. Yeah, IUD. There are two basic groups on the market. One is copper-related, or it works via copper. The copper molecules prevent you from getting pregnant. And the other one has progesterone in a, a hormone, which prevents you from getting pregnant. They are both highly effective, and they are part of what we call LOGS. Now, LOGS is long-acting, reversible contraception. And locks prevent more pregnancies than short-acting contraception because people use them for longer and more effectively, etc. So anybody thinking of using a lock, the answer should be yes, that's a very good plan. But it's not necessarily better um, regarding your cervix health. It's just that those are very effective methods to prevent pregnancy. And they are very safe, super safe. Progesterone one also helps to prevent excessive bleeding, which means you don't get uh, uh, blood deficiency or, or anemia, and that is uh, very important health-wise. If somebody has a virus, we know um, you can't treat viruses with uh, antifungals, antibacterials, antibiotics, right? Can you somehow boost your immune system by taking vitamins, would vitamins help if you are HIV positive or if you are carrying the HPV-16 virus? So there's widespread advice for people who are HIV positive to use certain vitamin mixes. And I think there has been there's some proof that that actually improves um, general health, um, selenium, etc. There's a group of things that's, that's advised for HIV positive women. The best ways to improve your immune system is to drink your antiretrovirals if you're HIV positive and make sure that your viral load becomes undetectably low. The second thing is to stop smoking because smoking is the most important factor that actually lowers the local immunity against HPV after HIV. So if we can have um, H- all HIVs controlled and all women not smoking, that will be the most effective way of boosting immune systems, much more effective than drinking vitamin C, etc. So there are vitamins that can boost your immune system, but there's very little proof that it helps. Professor, is there a relationship between HPV and HIV? Yeah, there's a strong relationship um, because HPV is opportunistic. It will, um, so the different types are not all the same. Some types are more opportunistic than others. Others meaning they can only affect, infect people with low immune systems and, and persist in people with poor immunity. 16 and 18 are not so opportunistic. They are bad oncogenic viruses which don't, they don't need a poor immune system. So they tend to actually be important even in people with good immune systems. 
But HIV and HPV are strongly related because HIV gives you poor immune system, influences your cell-mediated immunity, and that is the immunity that actually helps you to eradicate HPV. I cannot believe that we have got to 5 to 11, and we haven't even touched on breast cancer. And I feel that it's not really fair to talk to you in five minutes and sum up or in four minutes now uh, about breast cancer. I mean, we were talking about having regular mammograms, about doing self-examination. You know what? Bring in your partner. Let your partner do the examinations as well. You know, make it a little bit more fun, I guess. But uh, what else can you tell us about the BRCA2 gene? Well, about breast cancer, because it's also in men. It's not only women. Yeah, yeah. So there are two two genes um, that actually cause the majority of familial breast cancer. It's BRCA1 and BRCA2, or BRCA1 and BRCA2. And actually there are three spelling mistakes in Jewish people, Ashkenazi Jewish people. We call them mutations. And we actually have three specific Afrikaner mutations as well. So they, 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 they are different than the Ashkenazi Jewish ones. And there's also a Kosa mutation in our country that has been shown. So they are very specifically population specific. But we now have the ability to, to check for spelling mistakes in these genes and other cancer causing genes in families with cancer. And we should utilize that very, very widely. It's quite expensive. But it's not more expensive than a life. And if you do know whether or not you have a spelling mistake, you know at what type of risk you are. We um, think that um, in, in people with, with um, uh, these mutations, where it's been proven, they, you should actually take quite aggressive precautions even. But especially in younger women, because detection in younger women is difficult and uh, breast cancer in younger women is more lethal than breast cancer in older women. Crazy. So uh, um, cancer genetic screening is important, but the majority of breast cancer will happen in older women and they will happen in people without a family history. Professor, that is where we unfortunately have to leave it. Thank you very, very much for your time, for making yourself, your knowledge available to us. And uh, really, thank you very, very much. We're definitely going to get you back. Next time, I want to talk about anatomy of the vagina, and let's help men and women have better sex, actually. I'm just saying, we're going to do that next time, yeah? You're open to that. Good. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's a Professor Greta Dreyer. She's a female obstetrician and gynecologist specializing in gyno-oncology. Professor Dreyer is also an associate professor at the University of Pretoria and the head of the Gynecologic Oncology Unit at Pretoria Academic Hospital. I'm Kathy Kaler. This has been the DISCIM Medical Monday. Thank you so much for joining me today. Next week we're going to be talking about pain. We have a pharmacist coming in uh, from DISCIM, Linksfield, And uh, we're going to be talking about all the different pain medications. I've had so much feedback from last week's show where we were talking about Ozempic and how it's being used for weight loss. This is a diabetes drug. Anyhow, I thank you very, very much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much to Craig Guthrie, who's been doing the engineering. And thank you so much to my producer, Harry Seleke. Have a wonderful day. Look after yourself. God bless. I'll be back next week. Be good. Bye.